John chapter 8, we're going to continue in the Missio Christi series. The title of this message is Free, Missio Christi Free. As you're going to John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I need to let you know that the authenticity of this passage is disputed. That is to say, scholars argue as to whether or not this was included in the original writings of John, or perhaps it was added later. Having thoroughly investigated the situation, I can tell you in all authority that nobody knows. We cannot say for sure if it was not original. We can't say for sure if it was original. My take on it is it fits the character of Jesus and the tone and the tenor of John. And I believe that Jesus did this and many other things and that it's here for our edification and to bless us as the very word of God. So we'll receive it that way as a church today. I want to remind us as we read this passage uh, that this is a... Uh, theologically thick and rich and complicated passage, and that uh, in the Missio Christi series, as we look at these pericopes, pericope is a stupid word for a text, as we look at these texts, um, our goal is not to do a careful exegesis or a full-on exposition of it. We're not going to deal with all the details, all the context, all the ins and outs, all the minutia. That's not our goal in this teaching series. Um, there's a lot of questions in this text. You know, Jesus bends down and writes on the ground twice and everybody wants to know what did he write? You guys want me to speculate? I'm not even going to speculate. So there'll be a lot of questions, but our goal in this series with this text is to just glean some things about how Jesus did mission. Because we are people who are called to live life on mission. We want to be on mission and we want to do mission the way that Jesus did it. So we're just going to try to grab a few things that we could pull out of it that teach us about being on mission like Jesus was on mission. The main thing that I want us to see here in this text today is that Jesus is way nicer to serious sinners than many of us would ever dare to be. Way nicer to serious sinners. This woman just committed adultery. She just ruined her life apart from Jesus. Adultery ruins lives. It ruins families. It ruins generations. It ruins communities and churches and nations. She blew it big time. Jesus is really, really nice to her. I want us to see that as we read the text. Verse 1 says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. 
And from now on, sin no more. Lord, we thank you for the beauty that is in this text. The beauty of who you are. This text screams to us of a compassionate, merciful, kind, and loving God. Thank you that that's who you are. And we ask that this beauty and this kindness and this compassion wouldn't be lost on us, but you would teach us to walk in your beauty, in your forgiveness, and in your grace. You teach us to experience it. You would appropriate in our lives all the benefits of the cross. Lord, we pray together today for those who are struggling under the weight of condemnation and shame and guilt. We ask that you would set them free today by your Holy Spirit. You'd bring them to a place of repentance and you would surround them with songs of deliverance and you would flood their lives with grace and that there be newness, Lord. Thank you that you came to set the captives free. We ask that we would experience that and that we would proclaim and demonstrate that to the world. Don't let that beauty and that freedom stop with us. Help us to be vessels of your grace poured out onto a hurting, adulterous world. So Lord, come and teach us. Train our hearts to glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that we realize as people is that when we take the time to hear each other's stories, it changes the way that we feel about each other. When we have some understanding of where we're coming from and our background and our hurts and our difficulties, our fears, our failures, our hopes and our dreams, when we take the time to hear people's stories, it changes the way that we feel about them and the way that we deal with them. I grew up in a small town, Carpinteria, born and raised, and in a conservative Christian home. And being a conservative Christian from a small town, I imagine I felt about homosexuals how most small town conservative Christians feel about homosexuals. I think earlier in my life there was a degree of fear I think there was a very sinful sense of disdain, maybe even disgust. And then some years ago, I went to Chicago. I was out there training with a group that does training for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And I was invited there to come and study evangelism for a week. And one of the things that they did was send me out in the middle of the night on the streets of Chicago in the gay district to go into gay bars for the whole night till dawn and talk to people about Jesus. And uh, yeah, a little bit outside the box for Carpinteria. (laughs) And I went into a bunch of places and in this one place, I met this lady who was a homosexual and struck up a conversation with her and I don't think that I told her very much about Jesus. But I learned very much about her. We sat for a couple hours in the early morning hours and I listened to her story. She opened up to me and told me about her childhood and her life and 
things that had happened to her and issues that she had and how she saw herself and God and what she thought her future held. And as I listened to this woman, by the grace of God and for the glory of God, my heart changed. Fear was gone. I wasn't afraid of that anymore. Disdain and disgust was turned to admiration, love, compassion, burden. Changed the way that I see the world to talk to that woman that night. We are living in a world where cultural values collide with biblical morals on a colossal scale every day. And we as the church are called to deal with those things thoughtfully and carefully. Think about that collision that's happening around us and and to address it with the gospel. And I wonder how much better we would do at that if we took time to know people who are struggling with big moral issues or maybe are just affected by or victims of the social issues of the day. What we realize about Jesus is that he knew people. He knew people supernaturally because he's God. So he just knew what was going on in their corazones, right? In their hearts. He just knew what was going on. But he also took the time to know people. One of the favorite accusations of the religious leaders against him was that he kept the company of the worst sinners in society, that he took meals with them, that he lingered long with them around the table. He spent time with those people. And it's not recorded for us in the Gospels much of it, but I'm assuming, I'm speculating that there was probably conversation that took place when Jesus was with these people. That's our culture. That was their culture. You know, when you have someone over for dinner, you expect to have some good conversation. When it's just you and the kids around the table, you kind of expect it to be quiet. Like, be quiet, I'm eating. Sometimes, you know, with the kids. But when you have guests in the house, you expect to have some conversation. And I imagine that Jesus did the same. And I imagine that prostitutes got to tell their story. And the tax collectors who were the traitors in society maybe had a chance to explain to Jesus how they got where they were. And I wonder how we would better as a church deal with the issues of the day if we took time to hear people's stories. I wonder how we would really deal with homosexuality then. I wonder how we would deal with issues like immigration if we heard the backstory. Not that their story changes the biblical story. Not that we have a trajectory hermeneutic which says as culture changes, the Bible and its meaning change with it. We don't say that. There's a liberal component of the church that says that. We're a theologically conservative church. We don't say that. We think that God's, true, God's truth is true all the time for all peoples throughout history in every place. Not that their stories change the biblical story, but I think the more we listen, the more we see their stories in the biblical story the more we see the women 
at the well around us, the kind of people that Jesus seeks after. The more we see the lepers around us, the kind of people that Jesus touches when no one else is willing. And the better we interact with women like the, women, the woman before us, the woman caught in adultery, who was totally guilty, but who Jesus was totally committed to setting free. She was totally guilty. And Jesus was committed to pardoning the guilty. And what I want us to realize is that Jesus is so much nicer to really bad people than we could ever imagine. We're the evidence of that. And this missional truth is an outflow of a theological truth. That's John 3:16 and 17. John 3:16, we know and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. We love that verse. We need to learn to love verse 17 as well. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. What we see is that Jesus was on a mission of mercy to set people free. This is what he said when he read from Isaiah in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. That one Sabbath day, he opened up the scroll and began to read from Isaiah and said, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and to set people free from judgment and from condemnation. When Jesus read that in the synagogue that day, he purposely stopped halfway through a sentence. That sentence is preserved for us in Isaiah 61 verse 2. He read the first part, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he stopped right there. The rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped before he spoke of the vengeance of God because that particular time in history was the inbreaking of the favor of God and the kindness of God. There is a day of vengeance that is coming. It's the judgment of God. It's future. It's prophetic. It is sure and it's coming. Knowing about this day helps us to process some of the horrific injustices we see in the world. We know that Jesus will come and one day he will right every wrong. That one day every atrocity and injustice will be dealt with by the just judge Jesus Christ. But we also then realize that to a certain degree justice is prophetic. It's future. Though we work for justice in human relationships and human governments and human circumstances, wherever and whenever we can, we must realize in the final analysis that ultimate justice is prophetic. It's future. And what we need to lay hold of then is that what's present, what is now, is that we are living in the favorable year of God. We are living in what you might call the age of grace. 
where the Holy Spirit is actively interacting with the world to draw men and women to repentance by revealing the kindness of God. Romans chapter 2 says, the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance. The Holy Spirit is working to reveal the kindness of God that will draw men and women to repent. And we who want to live on mission and partner with the Holy Spirit must then become dispensers and dispersers of the kindness of God. We are called to dispense and disperse the grace of God in this world. 1 Peter 4.10 says it explicitly. It says, each has been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God or God's grace in its various forms. It says here that we are stewards of God's grace. A steward is someone who is entrusted by a master to dispense, to distribute, to give forth a commodity. The commodity which we have been entrusted with is the kindness of God. The grace of God has been entrusted with us and we are to dispense and to disperse the kindness, the grace, the mercy of God in all of its forms wherever we can. And this seems to be for much of the church a key area of mission where we are failing National surveys show that 87% of non-Christians in America see Christians as being judgmental. It's their second greatest perception of us. We are judgmental. And yet God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. He was not sent the first time to judge the world. What what have we made of this? Have we somehow thought then that Jesus not being sent to judge sent us to judge? I now send you into all the earth to judge the earth. That's not what he's done. In the same way that he was sent, we have been sent. We are stewards of grace and ministers of mercy. There is a prophetic sense in which we will judge. We will sit on thrones with Jesus and rule over the nations. We will even judge angels, the Bible says. But that is future and prophetic for now. We are called to be stewards of God's grace. It's a hard line for us to walk in this culture because we see so much that is contrary to God. We are to be salt and to be light. We're to be preachers of righteousness. We're to declare wrong from right. And yet Jesus is explicit that we are not to judge lest we be judged, condemn lest we be condemned. Is there anybody here that has that figured out? How to call right from wrong and yet not judge and not condemn. Has anybody here got that nailed? Nobody does. Okay. Then next week we'll talk about that. Next week, we'll address that. How do we do that as Christians? How do we declare right from wrong in culture and confront culture, but not judge and not condemn as Christ said? We'll deal with that next week. For now, I want us to deal with the fact that we are called to be stewards of grace. And I want us to see that what Jesus did was display the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of God to those who needed it most and deserved it least. 
those who needed it most and deserved it least. The difference that we see in our text between the religious leaders and Jesus is that the religious leaders were looking to condemn this woman. Jesus was looking to set her free. They were looking to condemn her. Jesus was looking to free her. This has got to make us examine how we view people. Because if you're at all in the world and not of the world, you're going to be confronted with people that are living lives that are radically counter to who Christ is. How do you view them? Are you a religious leader that wants to condemn them and is glad that justice is coming to them? Or are you like Jesus who desperately wants to free them and see them experience grace and mercy and compassion? We've got to think about how we view people. Jesus saw a very bad woman. He wasn't overlooking the sin. He saw a very bad woman who had done a very bad thing, who was in very bad need of mercy. The problem with us is we are often reluctant missionaries like Jonah was. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? He didn't go to Nineveh because he knew the Ninevites were bad people and he wanted them to get what they deserved. It comes out at the end of the book of Jonah. He's complaining to God. He says, God, I didn't want to go there because I knew that you were merciful and compassionate. And that if I went and told them to repent of their sins and if they repented, you'd have mercy on them. That's why I didn't want to go. He wanted them to get what they deserved. Jesus wanted to give them undeserved mercy. Jonah was like that to the very end. He was bummed out that God was so nice to them. God is really nice to people who really don't deserve it. The difference between the religious leaders and Jesus is that the religious leaders didn't care about this woman, not one bit. Jesus cared wildly for her. In verse four, it says that they claim to have caught this woman in the very act of adultery. If they caught her in the very act of adultery, it begs the question, where is the man? Why did you only bring the woman before Jesus to be condemned? Why did you not bring the man? Because as religious leaders, they must have known that the law of Moses, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, demands that both the woman and the man caught in adultery have the consequences dealt to them. Deuteronomy says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus he shall purge the evil from Israel. This tells us a couple things. Number one, God sees sin differently than we see sin. What our culture does with adultery is make it the most popular TV shows. We make it the subject of the biggest blockbuster films of the year. We make sport of it. We make it the content of our imaginations. What God says is that adultery is punishable by death. Somehow that offends us in a culture that takes sexual sin so lightly. God says to kill people that commit adultery. But you've got to understand that all sin is punishable by death. The wages of sin 
is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God sees sin differently than we see sin. He's serious about sin. He said to Israel, kill those who committed adultery and thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Wanted his people to be whole and pure. But his people, Israel, were much like his people, the church today. They pick and chose what they obeyed from the word of God. And they very seldom ever carried out this sentence on adulterers. They very seldom ever did it, historically speaking. It's just one of those things that they didn't really pay much attention to until now. And the fact that these guys only brought this woman and didn't bring the man means that at least they are guilty of a double standard. That they were cutting the man slack, that they weren't cutting the woman. Maybe the man was one of them and that's why. And they're violating the very law that they're claiming to want to uphold by not bringing the man also. What we see is that these religious leaders had ill motives. They wanted to trap Jesus. It says that explicitly in verse six. They wanted to trap Jesus. Jesus had a dilemma here. The religious leaders knew that he was preaching a message of mercy and compassion and repentance and forgiveness. And if we bring this guilty woman before him and we quote to him the law of Moses, if he does not uphold the law of Moses, then we as the religious leaders of Israel can condemn him as a heretic and destroy his reputation as a rabbi and distract the adoration of the people away from him. If he chooses to uphold the law of Moses in this instance, then he will immediately be arrested by the Romans because the Romans had removed the power of capital punishment from Israel at the time. And we learned from the previous chapter that this celebration was going on during the Feast of Booths, that they're in the Temple Mount. We know that there's a bunch of Roman guards always around the Temple Mount on Jewish festivals. And if Jesus had given the order as a Jewish rabbi to stone this woman, he would have immediately been arrested by the Romans. But if Jesus lets this woman get stoned, then what does that communicate to the crowds who adore him and who are following him about his message of mercy and compassion and repentance and forgiveness? No matter what Jesus does here, he loses in a sense. But he's not concerned about winning and losing. He's concerned about the woman. They're using the woman to forward their agenda. She's a prop. She's a tool. They don't care. Jesus doesn't care that his reputation will suffer in this interaction. He's willing to let their hostilities concerning her be directed at him. He cares about the woman. Another key perception of non-Christians about us American Christians is that we are insensitive to others. That's one of their major perceptions is that we're insensitive to others, that we don't care for people the way Jesus cared for people. Jesus seemed determined to show compassion and care toward the people that deserved it the least. And the fact that they didn't deserve it is what makes it beautiful, right? Because if they deserved it, then it's called justice. No big deal. But it's mercy. He's showing mercy. The fact that she didn't deserve it, that she was totally guilty, totally busted, totally deserved, according to the Mosaic law, to be killed, and that she wasn't, is beautiful. That's the mercy of God. 
We don't deal with people like Jesus deals with people. We deal almost exclusively on a merit basis. For people that perform well, there is almost no end to the way our culture will adore and idolize them. People that have performed poorly, there's almost almost no end to the way our culture will marginalize and ignore them. We are almost totally merit-based. Jesus was not like this. And when you treat people that way, according to their performance, you've done nothing of any profundity or spiritual value whatsoever. Jesus said in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What we see about God is that God is intensely relationship-oriented and not rule-oriented. He's relationally oriented, not rule-oriented. That's a dangerous statement to make as a preacher. God exists eternally as a loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And he creates humanity as an expression of the outgoing nature of that loving triune relationship. God is radically and intensely relationally oriented and not rule oriented. There are rules and he gives us rules and the rules are important, but God is not rule oriented. Think about it. We who are made in the image of God have been made to be relationally oriented. And and what we see is that life is less fun when it's rule-oriented. Have you come to church because for you that seems like the rules? You feel like you have to? Some of you are here this afternoon and that's the rules for you. Well, it's Sunday. I guess I have to go to church. That's not a God thing. That's a you thing. And you're, you're not having fun. You're not happy to be here. Let me set you free. You don't need to be here. Don't live a rule-oriented life. Others of you are here because of relationship. You love Jesus and you love his people and you're happy to be here. See, that's the way that life and relationships and our understanding of God is supposed to be. What if your relationship with your spouse was rule-oriented? What if one member in the relationship said, here's the rules. On Monday, you're going to do the dishes. Tuesday, you do the yard. Wednesday, you take out the trash. Thursday, we have sex. Friday's a day off. (laughs) What if those were the rules? How is that fun? Honey, it's Thursday. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We wash dishes on occasion because we want to serve the person that we love. We do the yard because we want to make a beautiful place to rest with the person that we love. And we make love because that's a relational thing ordained by God. It's not a rule thing. It's a right thing. 
God is radically relationally oriented. The religious leaders were rule oriented. That doesn't mean that Jesus throws the rules away. He doesn't. He wasn't disregarding the Mosaic law here that adulterers should be put to death. Jesus upheld the law perfectly all the time. He had to, to die in our place for our sins. He didn't neglect the law here. In fact, he said in verse seven, okay, then he who is without sin can throw the first stone. Jesus was actually willing to have the law of Moses carried out to its full extent. But he knew that there was more going on here than the need for strict application of the law and its consequences. You see, what Jesus is doing is subtly challenging the nature of justice. He's subtly challenging our understanding of justice. Think about justice. Is it always right for a strict and immediate immediate application of the law and its consequences to take place? As good as the law is, is is it always the right thing that there is an immediate application of the law and its consequences? Let me help you process that question. Does God deal with you that way? Does God deal out immediate, strict retribution according to his law when you fail? He does not. The way we need to begin to think about justice is we need to incorporate its prophetic definition. Jesus as a Messiah was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, especially in a section called the servant songs where he's characterized as a suffering servant. And God, in speaking of Jesus who is to come, said in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The person who is bruised and just about to break because of the consequences of sin, Jesus isn't going to come and break them. The dimly burning wick, the person who's just barely holding on to their last breath and the last thing that is sustaining them, Jesus doesn't come and snuff them out. And yet we are told that he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will. Future tense. There is a prophetic element to the justice of God which allows compassion and the compassion of God to be exercised in the here and now. What the religious leaders wanted was an immediate and strict application of the law and its consequences. What Jesus is fighting for is compassion for the bruised reed and the dimly burning wick that he sees in the woman before him. Each is seeking justice, if you will. But which form of justice is to prevail? Are we to be coldly justice-oriented or are we to be warmly 
compassion-oriented. You see, the prophetic sense of justice, because Jesus was able to look forward to the cross where he himself would suffer for this woman's adultery, Because he was able to look forward to the cross. He was able in the moment to extend radical mercy and extravagant compassion. She didn't deserve it. We get that. She deserved to die. The law says that. Jesus was radically merciful and extravagantly compassionate. Don't mistake that for Jesus being easy on sin. Jesus is not easy on sin. The cross was not an easy thing. The cross is where Jesus deals with sin. There's nothing easy about it. Now, because we are able to look back to the cross and forward to the coming of Christ to the cross where the judgment of God and the justice of God was met, to the coming of Christ where the judgment and the justice of God will be dealt out, we can, in the here and now, be radically merciful and extravagantly compassionate toward people because we can look back to the cross and forward to his coming. What that means is that we don't need to compromise any truth to be compassionate. We don't. You see, some of the church is is thinking now that you, you have two basic streams in the Christian evangelical church. You've got the conservative church and the liberal church and a bunch of stuff in between. And some of the church is bought into something called the trajectory hermeneutic, which says the meaning of the Bible changes with culture. And so they're letting go of and surrendering the authority and the inerrancy and the timelessness of the word of God in order to practice compassion toward people. But Jesus never compromised on truth to be compassionate. In fact, what we see is that Jesus fully upheld the sexual code of the Old Testament. God bless you. He didn't compromise on that for a moment. He upheld the sexual code of the Old Testament. But what is amazing is while upholding the code, he removed the penalty. Realizing that the most important truth to be upheld is that for his glory... On the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinful humanity in order that he might set us free from the law, from sin, from death, and from the devil. He doesn't disregard the law. He removes the penalty of it. Jesus had a compassionate orthodoxy. We are a conservative church, theologically speaking. I'm not even thinking about politics. Theologically speaking, we are a conservative church. I told you that a couple of weeks I had lunch with John Piper, and one of the things that we talked about was the most current manifestation of the church in American culture, part of the emergent church, and some of its more liberal leanings. And Dr. Piper was lamenting 
about this move toward liberalism that he sees within the church. And he was very insightful about it. He said, listen, Britt, nobody gets saved and is a liberal. When people get saved, they're conservatives. They believe Jesus saved them and everything about them. And he says, what we're seeing in this new manifestation of the liberal church is that most of these people populating these churches and leading these churches came out of, migrated from the conservative church. And the reason that most of them did that is because at some point in some way, the conservative church hurt them. The conservative church was overly concerned with the hard, fast application of the rules and their consequences and was lacking in the compassion of Christ and the prophetic view of justice and so wounded these people and not wanting to leave the church altogether, they left the conservative wing and moved toward the liberal wing and it's a compromise. But there's stories that they come from a place of wounding. And we dream together and we say, what if we raise up a generation of theologically conservative leaders who are kind and compassionate? who are more like Jesus and hurt less people? What if we had in the future a kinder, more gentler, conservative orthodoxy? You see, our faulty thinking oftentimes is that unless the rules are applied fast and hard, nobody's going to obey and nobody's going to fear God. And that's probably true with two-year-olds. You need to do that. But is that true for humanity? It doesn't seem to be true for humanity because what Jesus does is he frees the woman from condemnation. He says, I don't condemn you. And then he says to her, and don't sin anymore. And he actually thinks it's going to work. Hey, I don't condemn you. You're free. By the way, don't sin anymore. And he actually thinks that that will work. The reason he thinks it'll work is because that is the gospel. That is the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, you better do. The gospel is, hey, look what Jesus has done. And then obedience follows that and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The psalmist spoke of this in Psalm 130. He said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The psalmist understood that God is so worked in humanity that his kindness draws us to repentance. And that those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven the most, love the most. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared and revered. I recently read in a book this sentence that the gospel spreads best not through force, but through fascination. And I imagine it was fascinating for this woman and her community that though she was so deadpan guilty, she was so totally set free. And history tells us that that has fascinated the nations. That this God is so compassionate 
The gospel spreads best not through force, but through fascination. The psalmist said a very similar thing in Psalm 11, 111. He said, He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. That in some way we are to wonder at and marvel at and be fascinated by the grace and the compassion of God. And that this grace and compassion, when it's rightly explained to the world, is captivating. And it's because of this kindness, this mercy, this grace that fascinates through the cross that we've been set free. This woman was set free. The sentence of condemnation that was due her according to the law was not pronounced over her. It's not so much that she was getting off the hook. Rather, it's that Jesus would put himself on the hook. That Jesus would be hooked to the cross with three nails in her place. And he would pay the price for her sin. And so the book of Colossians tells us that he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And so Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's no condemnation. We've been set free. And the next verse in Romans says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What an orientation to the law and the hard, fast application of its meaning and its consequences could not do. God himself did in his compassion and his mercy and his grace and his kindness by sending his own son as an offering for sin. And so the church must ask herself, are we compassion-oriented? longing to see those who deserve it the least be set free? Or are we justice-oriented, secretly wanting to see people get what they deserve? Are we relationally-oriented, caring about and sensitive to people's stories? Or are we just rule-oriented, concerned about the hard, fast application of the rules without a view of the cross and the coming of Christ? Are we guilty of caring little for people, their plights and their problems, their failures? Or do we listen carefully and therefore care wildly for people? Can we create a kinder, more gentle, theologically conservative church? Can we be compassionate like Jesus? I want to end by just reading a few verses of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from him. And just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Lord, you're beautiful. And who you are in your mercy toward us, in your willingness to meet us in our brokenness, to exchange beauty for ashes, to pardon and free us when we're most guilty and least deserving to restore and renew us, to cleanse us like you did the leper. Lord, you're beautiful. We pray together for anyone who isn't experiencing that freedom from shame and guilt and condemnation. We ask that in this moment, Jesus, you would make them secure in your love. Lord, if they need to, if they haven't yet, we ask that you'd give them the grace to repent of their sins. And that as they repent, you would flood them with mercy. You would surround them with songs of deliverance. And Lord, that you would teach us to dispense and disperse this amazing grace to an adulterous world, a world who is cheating on you, God, who deserves wrath and judgment, but whom you are actively drawing by your kindness to the place of repentance. Teach us to partner with that, Lord. If you need help today experiencing the grace of God, please don't, don't leave under the weight of condemnation. Come and get prayed for. The prayer team is up here. And this Jesus who is so beautiful, let's worship him together.